Assalamu alaikum everybody, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. Um, we are so excited to start a new surah today, um, Surah Al-Majadala, number 58. Um, it's truly um, an amazing accomplishment when you think about the fact that we have now finished 74 surahs and we're starting our 75th surah. And that number was just so um, weighty on me. And I was thinking about um, how far we've come in this year and a half. Um, you know, we have 40 more surahs to do. Um, if people know our history, we have some that were done not by the Project Illumin style, but also the line-by-line -line traditional style. So when you tally that all up, I think we've done probably 96. I think there are like 18 surahs that have not been touched in either format. Um, but, you know, we are charging forward. Um, and I just have to take a moment. I mean, I, I reflected about this a little bit on, you know, in my weekly email yesterday. And it just is something that it's like this number and this whole experience has been really, uh, like, hard to get my, wrap my, my mind around. Because we've reached a point now where, you know, we've got so many videos out. People are finding us. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. It's really exciting. I'm getting more and more email. It's hard for me to keep up to respond because, you know, these are like really beautiful emails where people write about how they found the Project Illumin videos, they've watched them, they've made such an amazing impact on their life. Um, and, you know, a lot of them have just started and just watched a few. But it's like, um, you know, people then also you find are starting to, to quote to some of the things that we've talked about here. And, you know, sometimes, uh, most, most often without attribution, but, you know, we recognize them because we've lived with them and we've been exposed to them and we know that we've heard them here and not anywhere else. So when we start hearing these things from repeated in other places, you know, in some ways it's like the highest form of flattery, right? Because people are, you know, talking about it and, and you know, sharing it and imitating it as if it's common knowledge. That's really beautiful. But when you think about the fact that now we've covered 75 suras. Like, think about how much work it just takes to understand one sura, if you're even lucky to understand one sura. And the fact that we have now seen before our eyes that this one scholar was able to not just understand these suras, and, you know, we're charging forward. We're, we're you know, on the road, inshallah, inshallah, to finishing 114. But in the 74 we've done so far, it's not just an understanding of what's in the surah itself, but all of the stuff that goes around it and into it and, you know, in understanding what actually this surah says. And so when you start thinking about that entire production in one person's lifetime and who else has done that and where else can you find that, it's mind-blowing. It's like I start thinking about, you know, we talk a lot about Mozart and, you know, Beethoven people who can, you know, are their brains are wired differently and they can, you know, construct music and, you know, they're just at that level. And it's, that's what we're experiencing here. And I continue to try and wrap my brain around it because it's so stunning. And at a personal level, like I, rem you know, even just like when we started out and we were doing even like, you know, online social media, trying to tell people, hey, you know, watch this. This is really interesting. We're working on the Quran. You know, people are like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. But, you know, no one really had an understanding. And I think the attitude was almost like, hey, you know, trying to convince you we're doing something important. You should check it out. You should watch it. Now I've noticed in myself after 74 suras, I feel like, okay, this is the real deal. You know, this is like huge. And this is not something that you can easily replicate anywhere. Like anyone can 
pluck you know little things that we've covered along the way but no one can take command of the whole thing unless they really spend a lifetime studying this and I feel like my own conviction and confidence rising in the fact that okay we have actually you know we often talk about yeah Islam is you know a moral message for all of humanity and you know but now we've actually covered the ground to really back that up with something solid and it's not even about trying necessarily to convince someone anymore that they should pay attention it's more like okay now we've done it I feel like it's here if you want it it's your choice I don't need to convince you now it's truly just your choice if you want to take the time and invest in it because for me the answers are everything that we've covered and you know it ties into a lot of what um, the Sheikh said in yesterday's khutbah which was so powerful f to me and I feel like I've been waiting for him to just kind of say this for a really long time which is that you know, we really have a, a, an, an elevated moral message that is backed up by everything that we've been covering in the Quran. It's something that we in humanity need in this dark world. We live in a very, very dark world. And what are we all looking for? We're looking for the way forward. And I feel like we are so blessed that everything that we've covered here and now with a critical mass, way beyond a critical mass, here's the answer and here is where we as Muslims need to rise and say okay we have something better to offer we're not just another team you know we're not just another group of people that have a different ideology a different understanding this is actually something that can elevate all of us and that's what so you know I want to really call everyone's attention to watching yesterday's khutbah because it honestly is like the summation of everything that we're doing it's like what is the point of being Muslim if you are not about an elevated moral message and being a, a moral example to the world even if no one else understands what you're doing God sees what you're doing and I feel like you know we've now covered enough ground that we can say that with confidence we can back it up it's not just pie in the sky optics you know, nice rhetoric, nice jargon, nice trying to make us feel like we're, our club is good too. No, we actually have something much more elevated and much more important. And with that comes a cause and a mission that can be the source of all kinds of enlightenment and empowerment, even if the, you're just one person in a completely surrounded in a dark world. So um, I just, I, I wanted to just point out, I mean, it's all connected, right? I mean, it's like what we're doing in understanding the Quran, what Sheikh talks about yesterday, you know, part of the problem is that we as Muslims are like the modern day Israelites because we have now made all the mistakes that God warned the Israelites about and that understanding our Quran and all the messages to the Israelites need to be taken as messages to us and it's clear that we've failed in the same ways. So um, it's a, um, you know, it's an amazing time um, that we live in. Um, and with that, I also wanted to share like an article that I thought was also very telling. There's this really amazing article that came out in the Atlantic, and it's called Why American Teens Are So Sad. Um, and what is really fascinating is, um, so just this first paragraph, the United States is experiencing an extreme teenage mental health crisis. From 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%, according to a new CDC study, and this is the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. 
And this goes on and talks about, you know, why, why this is. And I thought I would share some of this with you because it was really enlightening and also just being the mother of a teenager. You know, Mito just turned 17 um, last week. You know, I see this and I see it um, very clearly. We've lived it. And, and it's, a, it's a really powerful article um, because teenagers now are experiencing something that, you know, we never experienced as teenagers. I mean, life changes and the circumstances change. So while, for example, it's a really interesting um, irony is that teen, self-reported teen behaviors like um, driving and drinking, fighting, bullying, sex before 13, um, those numbers have all declined. So from a behavioral perspective, things are more positive. But objective measures of things like eating disorders and self-harming behaviors and teen suicides are all tremendously up. And these were all things that were trending even before COVID. So this article posits that there are four main reasons why this is. Um, one is um, social media use, of course, it's no surprise, um, likening it to something like alcohol, mildly addictive and um, that can enhance social situations, but can lead to dependency and depression among a minority of users. And um, you know, there was a, someone who, or several quotes about how Instagram made you know, people feel worse. Um, but they felt unable to stop themselves from using it. Um, the second uh, factor is what he calls sociality, um, which is down, which is like, you know, socializing with your friends um, because social media certainly has replaced a lot of better activities that would allow, you know, teenagers to interact. Um, it's also cut into their sleep. So um, there are 30% um, more people who are getting less than eight hours of sleep because of it. Um, and so this, this generation is less likely to go out with their friends or get their driver's license or play sports. Um, and they're feeling a lot more loneliness and aloneness as a, as a part of this. And you know, so certainly they were feeling more isolation with, um, you know, with the onset of social media. I think there was a statistic that starting 2012, we passed the 50% mark of people actually having um, a phone and social media, and that correlates very clearly to a change in these numbers. Um, but so, so kids have been feeling more isolation before COVID, and then certainly when COVID hit, it just made everything worse. Um, point number three is that the world is just simply more stressful, and there's just so much bad news. And I think for teenagers, it is overwhelming between things like gun violence and climate change, um, war and politics and finances. Um, it's just, you know, uh, and with the media just focused obviously on bad news, it's hard not to be depressed about what you're seeing in, in the world. And then lastly, um, the effect of modern parenting, which is really interesting because as the world has become more um, dark and challenging and depressing, um, parents oftentimes have tried harder to protect their children and ironically creating more stress and anxiety. So they push them harder to make sure they get into good colleges. And this is a trend mostly like, you know, with upper middle class college educated people, you know, they're really concerned about their kids getting good grades and, um, you know, getting, having good applications and very active and going, you know, sports and all that kind of stuff. So kids feel a lot of pressure to perform in preparation for college. Um, and then um, simultaneous to that, which is very interesting, is as you know, as a, a matter of love, parents have become a lot more accommodating. So this idea of accommodative parenting. So if, for example, a child is scared of, of dogs, that you would shield them from dogs as opposed to saying, no, you should actually try and get comfortable. 
or if a child doesn't like vegetables, you know, then you might eat turkey loaf for four years, which is an actual thing that the, there's an actual article about this. But I, you know, I've seen so many examples of this where parents just accommodate whatever the kids feel uncomfortable with, and that ultimately teaches them an inability to to tolerate discomfort. Um, and also, you know, they they have so many things taken care of for them that they also have a lack of sense of personal competence, which are, you know, two obviously important skills that allow them to cope with stress in the world. Um, so, and then also as the world becomes more stressful for us as parents, then, you know, um, we, we, as adults, um, kids obviously pick up on that. And so when you put all of these things together, it is a really, really difficult time. Um, interestingly, you know, as from our perspective, obviously talking about these things, you know, no, no mention obviously of religion, of God, of purpose, of, you know, cause, higher, you know, higher anything. And so this is for, for us and for our purposes, I think really important to, to notice. And especially, you know, in light of, you know, the chutbah that I mentioned yesterday and all of the work that we do here. You know, it's, it's like so meaningful when you believe that there is a purpose, that there is a cause, that there is a light and there is a way forward. And it's so important, especially for our teenagers to, to learn that. And we as Muslims, understanding this message that we are, are, are learning, to pass that on, not even just to ourselves, but to our children. And so it just, again, underscores for me the importance of the work that we're doing um, and turning back to our foundations, understanding our Quran. You know, the Sheikh talks about how, you know, when, when people lose touch with, with the Quran, it's like you, you've really, I mean, you've literally lost your lifeline. So um, anyway, all of this to say, I, I'm so, so grateful for this journey. I can't believe that we have covered so many surahs and we still have so many more to go. But I already feel an incredible difference in just what we've done. I mean, it's like even a small portion of what we've done is life transforming, but when you start adding them up and now we're starting our 75th surah, that's crazy. That's amazing. And I, I feel so blessed and I just want to thank the Sheikh and thank everyone who's been with us on this journey. You, kn you know what's been involved in this and, and you know there's so much to gain um, if you're just finding us. You know, stay with it because it just gets better and better with every single surah. Um, so, and I, I, I can't wait for tonight's surah, surah majadala. Um, we were all like kind of, you know, making guesses about what the next one would be. Joe gets the award because he he called it a long time ago. Um, and also, this is a really um, sweet surah because there is a Quran study group um, where several of the members um, sponsored this through our sponsor Adopt a, a Surah program. So. I let them know, and so we've got then probably a team of Quran book people going, yes, this is our surah. <laughs> so anyway, thank you for joining us and looking forward to an amazing session. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa subhanallah al-Aliyya al-Azim. Wa huma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa al-Ali wa ashabih wa al-tabahu bi ihsanin ila yawm al-Din. اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين سورة المجادلة or as has been reported also, Al-Mujadila, uh, of course, the, the, the difference is whether it um, is referring to Al-Mujadila, the, the, the 
the argument or the pleading, um, or as we will see, the communicative interaction that took place between the Prophet and a woman uh, who brought a complaint to the Prophet or whether it's it, the if it's al mujadila then it refers to the person who is responsible for um, for the discussion or the argument or the pleading or the communicative act um, Anyway, we'll see. Um, I think that um, that it is not. I I think it is it is quite purposeful that this surah became known as Surah Al-Mujadala. Because the primary focus on the, of the surah, once you take the entire message in um, and considers a number of things that we'll point out to, is that indeed the surah itself deals with In our terms, in our terms, in our age, what we would call uh, moral responsibility in discourse. Um, because we notice that the, the surah starts with the idea of al-mujadala, where the communicative act starts out between a woman, well, actually, before even the woman comes to the prophet. The, the communicative act actually starts out between the woman and her husband, or a husband and his wife, or a wife and her husband. Then it goes from the wife, from this to the wife and the prophet. And then it goes from the wife and the prophet to the wife and God. And then it goes from wife to God to a revelation where God then speaks to not just the woman, but to existence at large, humanity at large, Muslims at large. But then what is the main and primary theme of the surah? Well, so 
the Mojadala, which refers to a communicative act that we, as we said, that starts out between a couple and then moves on to the prophet, moves on to God, moves on from God to humanity. Well, other than in Mujadala, the, the other main signifier in the surah is in Najwa. And as we will see, a Najwa is again a form of communication. But like the very idea of al-mujadala, while the while jidal or the especially al-mujadala refers to an actual demonstrative incident that unfolded, that led to a revelation, and as well we'll talk about what is the heart and core of this revelation. Well, al-najwa is a dynamic of discourse. And I'll elaborate on this, but that the here you have a converse, a, a type of discourse, I'll just stick to the to this term, which in fact, Juxtaposed to what ha juxtaposed to what happened with the the woman and her husband, it's a discourse that often has an exclusionary nature, meaning that it it intentionally leaves God out and intentionally tries to obscure itself from the Prophet and and then what is fascinating about the surah is that the the notion of Hezbollah, the notion of a party of God, which is a, a, a very powerful um, symbolic construct, the idea that there is a party of God and a party of shaitan, a party of, the, you know, you either belong to a divine party or you divine to a demonic party is a very powerful symbolic construct. And this idea of Hezbollah as the party of God is invoked only in this surah and in Surah Al-Ma'idah. But even in Surah Al-Ma'idah, which is a later revelation than Surah Al-Mujadala, is um, it, it, the way that it is mentioned in Surah Al-Ma'idah builds upon 
what was or the foundation already laid in Surat al-Mujadana. So the communicative act or the dynamics of communications who are the participants in a speech the nature the intentionality behind a speech indeed speech itself and the way that we handle speech can either end up in the category of Hezbollah or Hezbollah Shaitan. Now, as we will see, there, the, this surah has historical, is embedded in historical reality. But the meaning far transcends the historical reality. You know, as there is a card that they say, um, we rely on Umumul loves not Khususiyat as Sabab, that the, the reason for revelation could be specific, but the language could be general. And what matters, so we consider the circumstances of revelation in order to understand the dynamics, the, the trajectory of the ayat, the, the trajectory of meaning. But the circumstances of revelation doesn't mean that it traps the meaning of the revelation. And we'll see, I'll give you a very concrete example of this as to how sometimes interpreters, although they are, they all are aware of the principle that I cited, that we, we, we rely on Umumul loves we rely on the, the broadness of the linguistic expression, not on the specificity of the historical circumstance, but they end up trapping the trapping the the text of the Quran in the circumstances of revelation sometimes even unintentionally, as we'll see. And uh, it, uh, well, anyway, uh, let, let's wait until we get there so I don't confuse everyone. Okay. So it is really fascinating that we, we do Mujadala right after Surah An-Nisa because In Surah An-Nisa, in, in, in Surah An-Nisa, we saw a the the whole process of 
legal or of divine revelation that creates trajectories of ethical movement and ethical transformations and expressed as legal reforms and Surat al-Nisa consistently um, and Surat al-Nisa reminds us that all the trajectory of these legal reforms is to deal with the problem of istidaf, the disempowerment. And in Surat al-Nisa, it educates us on how there is many different forms of resistance to change. And, you know, if, if, at the risk of generalization and simplification, that the 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 ailment in resisting uh, these ethical reforms and these legal reforms is hypocrisy. Surah al-Mujadala, in many ways, is still connected to this dynamic. Except here, the focus is not on istidaf, but the focus is on how we, the morality of speech itself, how we relate to the normative role of you know the, the word discourse is often comes uh, with a lot of baggage because of the way it has been used by a lot of theoreticians and so on uh, so I, a lot of times I hesitate a bit when before I say discourse but I mean if you can take the word discourse without a lot of the philosophical baggage discourse as the dynamics of communication and the way that we uphold morality through communications or the way we defeat moral goals through communications. We, we, we human beings, we're supposed to be social animals. Right, even when we when we do things like you know isolate ourselves in room and communicate only through electronics, is still a form of socialization. Maybe uh, you know an unhealthy form of socialization, but nevertheless. So, and the heart of this dynamic of socialization is communication. But. It is precisely the dynamic of communicating, i.e. discoursing, where we either create moral systems or we undermine moral systems. The very role of speech 
is at the heart and core of what we do as human beings. And the amazing thing about Surah Al-Majadala, and what is even more amazing, that it is called that even at this very early age in Islam, you know, again, considering the historical time, that people had the awareness to reject all alternative possible names for the surah and to say, no, this is about the about precisely that. Jidal, there were some uh, um, early traditions of calling it Surah Al-Najwa or but Mujadara even captures the very idea of Jidal, captures the Najwa can possibly not include a process of Jidal, but Jidal would include not only Jidal, but also include Najwa. So in other words, the, 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 the term Mujadala itself is comprehensive enough to incorporate what would normally be called a Mujadala and what would also be called a Najwa. Okay. Yeah. Then the other thing that is um, noteworthy about Surah Al-Mujadala is that there is something striking about the surah is that in every ayah in Surah Al-Mujadala, every single ayah, Ismu Jalala occurs at least one time, for either from, from one to three times. If you go through every ayah in Surah Al-Mujadala, you'll find that Ismu Jalala, Allah's name, is mentioned in every ayah from one to three times. By my count, 35 times in the surah. This is in the surah that, as we said, even before Surah Al-Ma'idah, and in a more systematic way than Surah Al-Ma'idah, mentions Hezbollah as opposed to Hezbollah shaitan So we have in part a dynamic that continues the conversation about legal reform and legal change but that focuses on the role of speech and how a society is to use speech and how speech can be used to uphold morality or speech can be used to thoroughly undermine the moral uh, project of this ummah ultimately leading one of either recreating Hezbollah or Hezbollah Shaitan, the party of God or the party of Shaitan. 
Because in speech itself, and as we will see, when speech itself, I mean, in our modern language, we say speech itself is a creative is a creative act. But but beyond that, speech itself creates realities. And creates realities that sometimes are very distorted. So, how do I explain this? All too often, this happens all the time, there's a reality that you, that you or I might want to exist in our psyche or a reality that you or I perceive in our quietness. So without speech, if there was a machine that translated my perceptions into a narrative and you plug this machine, this machine could then describe how understands the reality of the house he lives in, for instance, right? Or Khaled Abul Fadl understands the reality of his relationship with his family. Or the way Khaled Abul Fadl understands the reality of his relationship with his wife. Or the reality of his relationship with his job. If there was such a machine, but there is no such a machine. There is, however, a God who reads, who knows the reality that exists in this consciousness. But is this the same reality that is actually we webbed and we and we woven when we start speaking about our reality and the answer is it might but it might not be it depends so let's say god understands or, you know, we said there's no machine that's going to read my consciousness and my under and my my reality as perceived by my, by my consciousness, but there is a God. And let's say my wife annoys me, and the speech that comes out of my mouth describes something completely different than before my wife annoyed me, what I thought the reality of my relationship with my wife is. But once the speech that left my mouth came out, it constructed a different reality. Now, 
look how the construction of reality through speech can easily get away from me, get away from all of us, and the moral question that Surah Al-Mujadala poses before you, okay, now, did you deal with this constructed reality in a morally responsible way? Because once that reality is constructed through speech, there are a new set of facts that now pose serious challenges to your consciousness. Either you have to reel back this reality to your true consciousness, or your consciousness will actually shift with this reality to accommodate the construct that you've created, albeit despite yourself. And this is precisely what we human beings do all the time. We, we think, you know, we like to believe, we, we like to pretend that we always have it under control. That, oh yeah, I say what I mean and I mean what I say, but that's nonsense. This is why you could start out in a job that you like and slowly the reality of the job has changed because you've said things and people said things to you that have altered the reality that used to be. And it could very well be not because you intended it, but because you reacted to a set of a series of events all in ways that has constructed a new reality that now has become inescapable. But Allah puts us before a very serious challenge because Allah is saying in every time have you constructed something nearer to the realm of the divine, Hezbollah, or the realm of the demonic, Hezbollah Shaitan. Okay. So the surah starts with something Again, all too often overlooked. You know, the typical tafsir tell you, um, you know, there's, um, yeah, a woman who, you know, goes to the Prophet. Was, they, they focus on sort of like the, the, the but they, let's, uh, let's, let's take a step back. Okay, so, Mujada is revealed after Surah An-Nisa, and see, you know, how close to Surah An-Nisa. What we can say is close. I mean, we know that it is revealed around the the, the year four Hijra. Uh, there, you know, either end of the year, the end of the fourth year, or the beginning of the fifth year. But most likely, in my opinion, it is the fourth year. 
And I don't think it was the beginning of the fifth year. I think it was either the middle of the fourth year or the end of the fourth year. And it's, so it is revealed close to Surat al-Nisa. Okay. And what the Tafasir always tell you is the occasion for revelation. And the occasion that is mentioned in, of course, Surat al-Mujadala itself is a reference that Allah heard the complaint or Allah heard the woman who is who comes complaining to the Prophet, right? Because Allah hears what you talk about. So, Khawla bin Thalaba is married to a man called Al-Aws ibn Samit. Both are Ansaris. And Al-Aws ibn Samit is an interesting figure. I mean, there, there are reports about him that uh, either he, in his old age, he sort of became sort of grouchy. Um, maybe he was a little bit, um, a little bit um, crass, uh, rough around the edges, not very refined. Um, but Khawla loved him. And we know, we know that Khawla, who outlives uh, her husband, um, even after her husband dies during the, the, the caliphate of Omar, so uh, it still st- still speaks well of her husband, although again he was sort of gruff and 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 uh, not the most refined human being. So okay. So that of course, as usual, there's a certain amount of disagreement among the narratives that. But um, you know, if you if you take what they cumulatively convey. You know, disagreements are is that Khawla's husband approaches her in some reports that he they, they just tells you that there was an argument, it doesn't tell you why, why the argument was there. But other reports tell you that the reason for the argument is that he made sexual advances towards her but in a gruff way. Um, and that, that he was a sort of a, a gruff human being. And so she repels him. She says, no. And he is hurt by the fact that she says no to him, and he then pronounces the zihar. Now, the zihar was a pre-Islamic Arab practice where... A husband tells his wife, Anti ummi, that you are the, like the back of my mother to me. And it's a figure of speech. And the figure of speech says, is like saying, you are like my mother to me. Which again is a figure of speech that is intended to communicate to a wife that, uh, you know, I, I can't deal with you like a wife anymore. 
you, you you're like like a, a, a haram uh, like a sister or like a mother like you know like um someone that i can't have conjugal relations with conjugal relations with women from we know from all types of sources that it was considered by women uh, an offensive a rebuke. It, it was a, a form of rebuke, but it was offensively received. Moreover, that now, depending on where, what region you're from in pre-Islamic Arabia, either once you said the statement, that meant the marriage is dissolved, so it was formed, was considered a form of talaq, or in which I suspect from all types of different reasons that it was actually the, the the practice in Mecca as opposed to Medina was that if you said the har, then you you're, you no longer have a deal with your wife as a wife, but at the same time she is not free to marry someone else. So she's neither married nor divorced. She's a mu'allaqa. I, I don't believe the mu'allaqa format is what existed in Medina. I think in Medina, it sounds to me like in the practice in Medina that the pronunciation of zihar was more like a divorce. It, it dissolves a marriage. But the thing about zihar is, is like, you know, in some societies in the, in the Arab world, uh, you know, swear was talaq. You... It was uttered, but you don't. You didn't mean it. So that husbands would say it in anger, and because they say it in anger, there would be a they they would refrain from having logical relations for a period of time, and then once they cool down, they just return to each other without a new contract or a new marriage or anything. So that it was sort of done in a, in a, in a, in a way in which, again, within the paradigm that I'm going to show you, inshallah, in which speech would create new realities. But the thing about zihar is that when you start tra tracking it and tracking what were the results of zihar in Arab culture, you find you, the thing that strikes you is how the extent to which this speech would create realities that would get out of control. So you even have pronouncements of zihar which lead to feuds between tribes that would go on for years and years because it is not clear whether this woman is actually married to this man or not just because of the pronouncement of Zahar. And what happened in this situation with Khawla 
actually demonstrates this because when um, um, what's his name? Aus uh, ibn When Aus ibn pronounces the Zihar and she of course is offended Khawla is offended and then after some time passes, a couple of days pass uh, Aus wa- goes back to Khawla and says, you know basically wants to have conjugal relations. And she says, no, you said Zahar. And he says, well, I didn't mean it. And she says, well, no, I, you will not touch me unless I bring the matter to the Prophet. Now, you think from this that Khawla wants a divorce. Because she say, you're not going to touch me unless I ask the prophet. You'd think that she she wants a divorce, but as it turns out, she it's in fact, she doesn't want a divorce, but it is clear that she also doesn't think that it's a casual matter, that you can say something like this and it have no moral consequences that in fact she wants to know whether I am whether in fact this speech has produced an actual act of dissolution or no. We know that men would say zahar all the time and then say we've changed our mind. We know that they, or I didn't really mean it, and. But we, but what compelled Khawla to take a stand and not be like all the other, as we will see in the reports that I will tell you about in a second, all like the, like the many other situations where women, where men would say Zahar and then women would, would have conjugal relations with them without further ado you know, once they cooled down. But Khawla made a stand. And she takes the matter to the Prophet And the Prophet, there, there's two versions of the of the reports. One, in one version that the Prophet says, I don't know what the answer is. And another version is the Prophet says, that, you are, in fact, that now your marriage is dissolved. Both versions agree that Khawla doesn't want the marriage to be dissolved. But it makes you wonder then, okay, so what did she want when she brought it to the Prophet? And It is clear that what she wanted was to sort of hold hold her husband or to stress upon her husband the seriousness of this matter. But once she hears from the prophet that in fact the marriage is over, 
And she keeps asking him, well, what's the solution? And she, in, in some versions of the report, she even says that I have children. And if I let him have custody of the children, they, they, will, they will get lost. Um, perhaps she thought that he was not a very patient father or he was not a good father, but she says that if he takes custody, they're going to be, get lost. And if I take custody, they're going to starve. So, but again, what is, when, when you do, when, when you gather everything that you can find about Khawla and her husband, it turns out that Khawla actually loved her husband. It's not, it wasn't just like, you know, um, uh, and in fact, there, there is in, in, some traditions where she Khawla says she Khawla's asked you know well uh, um, uh, years later and some reports say that this was at the time of Umar ibn Khattab but anyway I I don't know if it was actually that late um, but anyway they asked well you know uh, you are because Khawla became sort of a, a, a had a special status after this she's the woman that occasioned a revelation of the Quran and that became like a status. And so people would ask her, what, you know, what compelled you to, how did God, you were the woman who God listened to, you know, God heard from, from seven heavens and, and responded to, how did you, you know, what, she'd say, you know, I, I wanted to make a point that, Um, and I forgot how it was phrased, um, but anyway, that basically that that it it is no no light matter. That men pronounce the zihar. Okay, so then she keeps arguing with the or pleading or appealing her case. And the Prophet basically says, I, I don't have a solution. Either I don't know, or more likely that I, I think your marriage has been dissolved. And then the revelation in response to this, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah has heard the woman, the discussant, or the plead, the pleading, or the the disputant, it's been translated in all these different ways. Muhammad Assad just says, God has indeed heard the words of her who pleads, also pleads. Yeah, so he he prefers pleading, but you you find and. And because tujadilak doesn't necessarily mean argue with you, it could be someone pleading with you, it could be someone The thing is that they are going back and forth with you. They are not receiving one thing and just walking away. But 
critically that the woman goes from speech with her with her husband to speech with the prophet to speech to God because she once she hears what the prophet has to say she raises her hands to this to the heavens and starts complaining to God that she is in a difficult situation that she's unhappy um so on and so forth and and the revelation when the revelation comes look at what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says right alladhina yuzahiruna minkum min nisaa'ihin ma hunna ummahatihim underscoring something that is rather obvious it's like speech has constructed a reality by saying you are like my mother the constructed reality of that speech is she in fact became haram for you your speech although she is not your mother but it constructed a hurma it constructed a regal relationship because of that speech and Allah comes and rolls back on that in a very fact of matter reminding us that your speech is in fact corrupting reality and 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 saying it in the most and you know remarkably so many commentators you know I'm not struck by the fact that the response to this and some are like struck by it but they don't they don't have an answer as to why but that Allah just says in a very matter of fact well they're not their mothers their mothers are the one who gave birth to them well all of us know that right but Allah doesn't speak in a vain fashion or just to to entertain us the point is this is Allah saying your speech is is constructing a corruption and in this case Allah intervenes to roll back this corruption but there is a price to you using speech in a way that corrupts and the price are the kafarat and the kafarat is either you free a slave you feed 60 indigents if you can't free a slave and you can't feed 60 then you fast 2 months 
Now, remember that if you kill someone by mistake, the kafara is to free Iraqabai. So here, the corruption, the corrupting influence of speech is a, it's a form of fitna. It's a very serious offense, serious enough to warrant that it's, it's as if to undo the corruption, you need to create liberty. You need to give life in the same way that slavery is taking life. Well, by freeing Iraqaba, you are giving life. Now, of course, Khawla, her, her personality is, 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 is fascinating, and I'll tell you why I'm focusing on her personality in a second. But So Khawla tells the, the Prophet, um, well, we don't have slaves, and we can't afford to buy a slave to free. Okay, well, feed 60... Well, we we don't. If anything, we we need to we need to be fed. We don't we don't have the resources to feed anyone. Okay, well, tell your husband to to fast two months. He, uh, my husband is too weak. He he can't fast two months. And then the Prophet ﷺ donates to her the money. That, and actually, in some reports, the Prophet donates most of the money so she, her husband can feed 60 indigents, um, and she herself donates the rest. And she tells, tells the Prophet, Well, you know, if it's okay, if, you know, my husband, uh, can I just help him out? And so, so I mean, she, she obviously wants this marriage. And she it wants this marriage even to the point that she's willing to, to... And just so you get a sense of Khawla's personality, she doesn't disappear in Islamic history after this, but she, she often... She's very proud of the fact that she's the woman that... Um, uh, that was at the locus of Surat al-Mujadala, right? And so she's she uh, also not dialed in, not not an influential figure. She's not a very eloquent uh, spokesperson. She she doesn't have a lot of resources, um, but. During the Khilafah, during Omar's Khilafah, she, she actually stops him as, um, and, and she gets in the habit of stopping as him as he's going back and forth and lecturing him about the public good. Um, Unfortunately, the sources didn't preserve for us what precisely the content of her speech was, other than to tell us that she would tell Omar, she would make her opinions known. 
but that she it would always be she would make it in a in a in a in a way that in in she's very much you know aware she's very much proud of herself and aware of her status because it's not she doesn't go to the mosque and you know uh, raise her hand to 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 say a word no she she waits until he is traveling stops him and speaks to him very publicly in front of everyone and when uh, omar is asked why he puts up with this old woman by you know younger useful people and he says you know you, you guys do you guys know who this woman is do you, this is the woman who Allah listened to from from seven heavens. If Allah listened to her from seven heavens, wouldn't Omar listen to her? I mean, if Allah Allah's self listened to this woman, a priori, Omar must listen to this woman, this type of woman. Um, now, why am I, uh, why am I mentioning this? Because, and my normal pedagogy is that I hold the delivery point till the end. But in this situation, I'm going to deliver it at the beginning rather than the end. Because I fear in this case, holding on to it till the end you will miss or you will not pay attention to that you might miss the relevance of of several points if you don't know where I'm going with it. No, although I don't do that often, but so here we have Can we call it a situation of istidhaf? Well, sometimes Zihar did produce istidhaf, as in disempowerment, especially when it resulted in a woman being a mu'allaqa. But here in Surah Al-Mujadala, it is not in every case or in every situation in many cases, a woman would just be divorced and not necessarily a mu'allaqa. But, so it is not necessarily the element of disempowerment as the element of the wrongs that the way that the wrongs that can be can, can result from abuse or abusing communications and again we'll see how the, the how this is woven in into in the rest of surah abusing speech and the 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 dynamic is that you can never historically freeze 
what the types of wrongs that speech can generate. In other words, this is a highly contingent and highly fluid situation. What type of constructs and what the minute we say constructs from speech, we are also immediately saying, well, there could be corruptions because there could be constructs that are Hezbollah shaitan and there could be constructs that are Hezbollah, right? So now what if about the constructs that produces figuratively Hezbollah shaitan? In this situation, a woman takes the corruption that arises from her interaction with her husband. She takes that to the prophet. The prophet doesn't give her a solution. She complains to God. God gives her a solution. Okay, now what do we do when the prophet is dead? And you have a complaint, but you can still articulate your complaint to God, but we don't have a revelation. We don't have God speaking to us through revelation to solve the miscontracts, the way that our social dynamics, social discourses, Social intercourses produces corruptions. Surah Mujadala will tell us a lot about how we, what we need to, in fact, but here's the moral impetus. It is that it is absolutely incumbent upon us to have the moral consciousness and the moral understanding that Hezbollah or Hezbollah Shaitan is not about a didactic reading of texts and saying, well, here's what the text says, and fit your problems within the formulas provided by the text. Because that's, that in itself is a corruption, the disparity between the solutions provided by the text and the evolving reality will get worse and worse and worse in the absence of the Prophet we must have a voice, a dynamic, a process for delivering solutions to social ills that is as vibrant and as lively as the way Allah solved this woman's problem. And I'll show you, remember I told you that there are things that, unless I told you what the 
and and I'll show you in Surat Mujadala all these things that Surat Mujadala is is underscoring. If if your dynamics of Nejwa, which well, and, and we'll get to, the, I have a lot to say about Nejwa, but. Let's say if the, your dyna, the dynamics of your discursive processes, to use our contemporary language, if you have the, you have discursive prophecies, you have you construct realities through these discursive processes. These realities inevitably will get away from you. They will construct realities that are often in competition with your intentionality. You will intend one thing and construct another thing. Now, to what extent is God part of this process? Because as we will see with Nejwa, when God is not a part of this process, that's a problem. But is what is even as bad is that when you say God is the, is part of this process, but God is misrepresented because you don't have someone that hears the mujadila. You don't have so God is so God hears, but revelation has ended. So what is the process that is representing the presence of the divine in your midst? It's one thing to say, yeah, God exists, God hears. Yeah, I'm complaining to God. Allah hears my complaint. Hasbi Allah wa al wakil, right? I mean, Allah is... But okay, but if the presence of God is not translated into solving problems the same way that Allah solved this woman's problems, you've created Hizb al-Shaytan. Excluding the divine is Hizb al-Shaytan, but it's, so is also misembodying the divine. And that is precisely why it's a, you. That is precisely why I believe, and and we'll see when we talk about darajat and ilm. That the absolute, if if there is a field which it should be the most competitive in terms of standards for education and admission. It should be al-uloom al-ilahiyyah. The, the, the law that represents the divine will. It should be the most competitive. If it's a field that should be the most demanding in terms of its curriculum, and pedagogy, and system of education, not two years in Medina, it absolutely 
should be because what is required is a dynamic, an intellect that fully understands the, everything from the dynamics of, or, or at least is, is open, as we will see in a second, because through, even that Allah tells us about, is open to understanding. discursive dynamics, dynamics, epistemological dynamics, deontological dynamics, the, the process of that looks at the psychology of human beings, the sociology of human beings, the sociology of law, the psychology of law, that, and all of that, not to rule over people, but to even articulate a suggested divine will because it's the point is is no one will become god we don't have people that will rule like a pope like you know i speak for god no but even to just say you have voices in society that can act as a resource for the potential voice of god is a very serious responsibility and we'll see what surah Mujadala says about this in a second. Okay. Um, okay. Um, in by the way, um, Tahrir al Raqaba, which is the, one of the kafarat for Zihar, um just before I move move on, that Tahrir Raqaba is any form of releasing human beings from oppressive bondage. Although historically, and again, that the you know. Uh, the umumul loves is what matters. That Hrir al-Raqaba, although historically it's referring to the institution in slavery, but I think that any form of freeing a human being from bondage, so if you come and you free someone who's being trafficked in modern-day human trafficking, that's Tahrir al-Raqaba. If you come to someone who is in jail because of debt and you pay off their debts and you free them from jail, um, you know, in, in civil uh, law countries, people can be jailed for debts. Um, for the most part, not in common law countries. Uh, but your life could be destroyed anyway, I mean, because of debt. Um, there are some people, debt can, although they're not in jail, but that can um, absolutely just you know tear their lives apart and if you come and you pay off their debts and free them that's the hayro raqaba um the other thing is it is too easy too easy because the way i like so many others studied this is that okay zihar you used to be a historical experience you say you are like the you know back of my mother. Well, we don't do it anymore, 
So, hukmul ayah nusrah. You know, you know, if there's someone who says it, then okay, then this kafara applies to them. But this way of dealing with the Quran, I I think is really objectionable. The 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 hukm remains effective because yes, we might not use that expression, but get to the heart of the matter. What other expressions that we could use that could cause emotional injury that would express the intimation of divorce, although we don't intend divorce. And when Allah says, often Islamophobes and Orientalists say, oh, in Islam, you know, Islam doesn't take divorce seriously. Again, it's just, it, it's, um, that's the way the impact of colonial discourses on Islam. And, of course, misapplication of the law as well, because for Islam to, for Allah to look at something and act like this, as requiring such a serious kafara, it's in a word Allah is saying, you know, you are take careful responsibility for what you say because some of what you say can have the type of corrupting impact that in the eyes of Allah is so serious that to expatiate for this sin would require such a heavy kafara. I mean, fasting two months? Because actually, you know, when you talk to modern Muslims, you're struck by some modern Muslims who like, don't even get the seriousness of something until you tell them fast two months. It's like, oh, fast two months, oh, now that's serious. But, you know, you tell them free someone from slavery, feed 60 people, they just don't get it. There, you know, what does that mean? Um, the responsibility of what we say and what we say creates reality, and the reality we create, we are morally responsible for, but there is then it's a responsibility upon society at large. And that is the legal dynamics and legal responsiveness of society must keep up with the moral dynamics and ethical dynamics of society. If the, if the law is basically in its own constructed reality and it has very little to do and, and very little recourse in what what ends up happening is precisely what we are living through and that is we all play, pay lip service to sharia but when it comes down to it if our children tell us we're going to specialize in sharia we're deeply distressed if they're going to go specialize in medicine we're happy we want our daughters 
to marry doctors, not to marry Sharia people. The, these are all, but but again, you can, because it's our our collective societies as Muslims have not made of Sharia a very serious field. Um, if Sharia basically is to read books that are found in uh, positive books of positive law that were written in the fourth century Hijra and to tell people, well, that's God's law. Well, that's not very impressive. You don't need a very developed intellect to do that. And so in turn, people don't have a very much, a very high regard because it, you know, it seems like you read a real intellect to read abstractions and, in, in and, and, and a highly evolving field like medicine or, 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 or various sciences and so on. Um, okay, anyway. Oh, it's Maghrib already? Okay. Um, we got break 10 minutes for Maghrib. <laughs> 10 minutes for Maghrib. Don't go away. I, I guess, I, yeah, anyway. Yeah, 10 minutes for Maghrib and break iftar and we'll be back. Don't go away. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Are you guys still fasting? Raise your hand if you're still fasting. Oh. Haram. It's... Well, you're 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 receiving ajr because we're I'm drinking in front of you, so the hasanat is counting. So. <laughs> so Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. One of the um, fascinating thing that you find now in this context. So there are the riwayat that tell you about the institution of Zihar before the revelation of this verse. But there are also riwayat that tell you about the institution of Zihar after the revelation of this verse. And what... So... Uh, for instance, there uh, there is a riwayah from about a uh, an Ansari called Salma bin Sukhra. Salma bin Sukhra al Bayadi, um, who I mean, it's, it's sort of a little colorful, but uh, um, apparently Salma ibn Sukhra had um, um, a strong sexual drive. That's what the Ruwayah says. And um, so, and he, um, yeah, he had a, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, to stay, you know, uh, PG, 
So he, um, Ramadan is, Ramadan comes along and he is worried, he, he wants to abstain from conjugal relations during Ramadan. And he wants to abstain from conjugal relations because he is worried that if he has conjugal relations at night, that sex will be on his mind when he's fasting. And he doesn't want sex to be on his mind um, when he's fasting. So he goes and he does zihar, or he tells, he pronounces zihar towards his wife for the duration of Ramadan. So he tells her that in the course of Ramadan, you are like the back of my mother to me. But then, according to the, the riwayah, there is one night he sees her silhouette in the um, light of the moon. <laughs> And he can't hold himself back, and what happens, happens. And so then he goes to the Prophet, and he says, you know, okay. And the Prophet, of course, tells him, you know, don't you know that you shouldn't say Zahar anymore? He says, well, you know, I, I didn't want to have sex on my mind during Ramadan. And so now... What happened, you know, what, so the prophet tells him, okay, well, you can't come near your wife again unless you do the kafara. Um, there is other way, some of them quite long, so I mean, I, I can't, I'm not going to go, some of them about, like the same, about Salma bin Sakhr, um, but in a in a longer version, um, and some the longer version Ruaya is is reported by, about someone and uh, someone else, and the longer version has some telling aspects that I think are worth. Um, so you have the basic structure that there is the pronouncement of zihar, but in these other versions. The the the, the pronouncement of the har is is not done to uh, abstain from doing Ramadan, but the pronouncement of the har is the result of of lack of control. Like basically, he pronounces it for. Um, but then again, the same element that after the pronouncement of the har, as is consistent with. What we know about the, what would frequently happen is that it's pronounced, but the husband doesn't really mean it. And there is a, a resumption of conjugal relations after the pronouncement of Zihar, but then the realization after presumption of, uh, of conjugal relations that, oh, well, we've got a problem because now the Quran requires a kafara for marital relations to continue. Um, but 
the variant that I want to just point out is that, and and let's let's stick with let's stick with uh, Salma bin Sakhr because it, it, just for convenience sake that um, so Salma bin Sakhr and these variants he he same elements and in fact in, in one of the reports he says uh, I was very virulent and you know so little bit of but once the the, the conjugal relations take place so he says he realizes there's there's a a serious problem now because he's pronounced the har and he's broken the the har by resuming conjugal relations so he starts going to different people some of them family members and saying what do you think i should do so they say well you've got to speak to the prophet and he says to them well i am worried about i'm embarrassed to go tell the prophet by myself come with me and they respond la wallah la naf'al natakhawaf an yanzilu an yanzila fina quran that no we won't come with you because we are worried that a revelation will come about us um, or that the the prophet would say something in response to us that would shame us for time to come and basically they tell him you're on your own um okay that's not we're not going to come with you so in this narrative he eventually so uh, goes and tells the Prophet what happened. And the Prophet says to him, oh, then first he chides him for engaging in the har in the first place. But then says, okay, you've got to, to free um, um, a rakaba, a, a slave. And so he strikes his own neck and he says, by God, I don't own other than this. So he says, well, feed 60 indigent people, Sitina Miskina. Um, so he tells them, you know, by God, you know, if, if I'm ever able to feed myself once a day, I would be fortunate. So the Prophet Ali, Ali Salaam, then um, says, um so fast two months and he says and again in these versions he says to him the, the whole problem was created because of fasting like basically i'm, I'm not going to be able to 
So the Prophet says, okay, go to Beit al-Mal, take money from Beit al-Mal, and feed 60 people. So the Beit al-Mal gives them the money to pay the expatiation. So he then goes to the people that he asked to come with him, and he says, um, He returns to them and says, وَجَدْتُ عِنْدَكُمْ الْضِيقُ وَسُوءِ الرَّأْيِ وَوَجَدْتُ عِنْدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ السَّعَةِ وَالْبَرَكَةِ That with you, you gave me no solutions, and what I found with you is only hardship and problems. And when I went to the Prophet, what I found with him is ease and blessings. So in other words, you guys made my life very hard, and... He solved it for me. Now, these narratives, if you ponder them, so we know that the that this is an ingrained social practice and a social practice that will take will take time to be rooted out. But also that the way that the Prophet ﷺ manages the rooting out of the social practice in itself is quite responsive and indeed combines all the elements that you would want from a responsive legal system. Ease, understanding, flexibility, dynamism, the, the solution of even to say, you know, regardless of whether these are historical reports or pedagogical constructs I, I, it's all the same for me because the what they are communicating is solving the problem in a way that maintains principles but generates actual solutions and to you know say well I'm not able to fast two months, And for the Prophet ﷺ to solve the problem by saying, well, okay, then it becomes a, we, we, we the, the collectivity will pay for the kafara, upholds the principle, but does not exhaust or does not abuse the individuals involved in the dynamic. Um, okay, I want to make sure I don't forget it. So, this goes back to the same 
element that we before the before Maghrib, um, I was focusing on that while Allah reminds us, وَتِلْكَ حُدُودُ اللَّهِ وَلِلْكَافِرِينَ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ That these are Allah's hudud, that prohibition of the har and the kafarat of the har. But the dynamism of the response itself preserved in the riwayat is quite telling, especially in light of what will come after. Okay, so then Allah reminds us that from this dynamic in which we have a woman that is eager for a solution from Allah that brings the problem to Allah and the Prophet and brings them ultimately appeals to Allah and Allah provides a solution and taken with the riwayat that shows the Prophet completely with the program so to speak and makes Allah's law, upholds the hududullah in principle, but at the same time, hududullah is not out to torment or flagellate or abuse people. From there, we are taking to what can be, can, one, one can say, is juxtaposed to something that if you're reading the text carefully should cause you a bit of alarm. Like you, you, you stand up and pay attention and say, oh, hold on. So, because then, this is ayah, verse 5. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُحَادُّونَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَهُ كُبْتُوا كَمَا كُبِتَ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ Now here, we're, we're taken to those who يُحَادُّونَ اللَّهُ Juxtaposed to this woman are people who, in fact, don't take their frame of reference is not to go to Allah and the Prophet for a solution, but in in fact seem to exist in in hostility to or in opposition to Allah and the Prophet. And kubitu, the very expression that they, they, it's like they've been damned for, and so you, you perk up and you say, okay, so we're not talking about the woman and her husband who are sort of a, a very different dynamic in terms of the problem of communication and what results from your communication and going to Allah and the Prophet and all of that. And Allah reminds us that with this constant refrain, 
that the day will come where indeed Allah will remind them of their deeds that they have forgotten, but Allah has not forgotten. Whenever you see a reminder in the Quran where Allah is telling you about deeds that you might forget, but Allah does not forget, you are immediately reminded of the Prophet's hadith that there are things that human beings articulate or say that can plummet them in hell. They might take lightly, but indeed, for Allah, they are most serious. So in other words, put differently, the responsibility of speech, the responsibility of the discursive process. There are things, dynamics of talk. So for instance, you might have someone that says all the time, you know, swearing by God, divorce my wife three times. And he might swear on things that are violated. And by the discursive process, his wife is no longer his wife. But he never thinks about it. And he goes home and he resumes his relationship with his wife, never thinking about all the times that he said, you know, he swore can you imagine the consequences of, in the hereafter you've been living in haram for all these years you took your speech very lightly but the reality constructed by the speech is disastrous upon you but here what is Surah Al-Mujadala alerting us to. So first, Allah reminds us of two things. One is that Allah doesn't forget. And that Allah understands the responsibility and the reality of your speech. Understands what happens from your words. You might ignore it. You might be oblivious to it. But Allah is not oblivious to it. So that's one. But two, look. Allah reminds us that, listen, there is no Najwa, and this is the first time that Najwa now enters in the picture. There is no Najwa that Allah is not a part of. There is no Najwa that are two people cannot talk without Allah being their third. Three people without Allah being their fourth. Five people without Allah... No, and no greater, no lesser. Allah is present. We often say, yeah, yeah, you know, I know this. But do you really? Are you really fully conscious of Allah's presence? Every time you talk to your wife, every time you talk to, you, to, to your business partner, Every time you talk to your children, every time to, in every conversation, Allah is thoroughly present in the speech. So what is the issue, though, with Najwa? 
Okay. So first, this is in Ayah 7 that where Allah says, you engage in Najwa and I am reminding you that there is no Najwa without Allah being there. But then in 8, أَلَمْ تَرَ إِلَى الَّذِينَ نُهُوا عَنِ النَّجْوَى ثُمَّ يَعُودُونَ لِمَا نُهُوا عَنَهُ So first it tells us that they were told not to engage in najwa. And yet they consistently violate this najwa. You first told that. Then an elaboration. What is, what is the form of najwa that they engage in? Well, the form of najwa that they engage in involves rasul. That it involves ism, sin, idwan, aggression, rasul, disobeying the, the Prophet. Before we get even further elaboration about the hayuk. We pause because Allah is alerting us to the nature of Najwa. Allah doesn't say immediately they were banned from engaging in Najwa that is sinful and aggressive and disobedient. No, Allah says they were forbidden from engaging in Najwa and then explains the characteristics of their Najwa. That immediately alerts us to, okay, so what is Najwa? And in what ways is Najwa similar to or different from Jidal? And Najwa, the word itself, Mushtaqa, it's, it's a word that comes from a nujuwa. A nujuwa is anything that is elevated and raised. Um, and So, secret talk, secretive talk, is described as najwa because it, it, it has the element like elevated land or like mountainous areas. It's exclusive and inaccessible to the others. So, what is the nature of najwa? Najwa is the, a type of speech that by its nature inaccessible or exclusive. When you say Najaytullah, if you are doing it, if you are uttering a supplication in public where everyone can hear you, technically that's not a munajah. A munajah is something that you are uttering, if it's directed at Allah, at God, then 
it is not accessible or that it has an element of inaccessibility. So what is the social problem that is taking place? Remember in Surah An-Nisa, we talked about a lot about how there, the hypocrites or those that are saying they, they are believers. They, they in fact, as count themselves among Muslims, but that they go and meet with Christians and Jews and are constantly engaging in a counter discourse to the prophetic project in Medina. They they support or they reaffirm the the parties that did not convert to Islam, the Christians and Jews, and the Christians and Jews are reaffirm them in in turn. Now, what's fascinating is that in the reports it tells us that this process of elements that identify themselves as Muslim going off in secret meetings or exclusive meetings, speaking with Christians and Jews who are considered uh, uh, outsiders to the to the Muslim Ummah created anxiety among the Muslim community it, it 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 would often make them feel like it resulted in the spread of rumors it resulted in the rumor mills often circulating of stories that about impending dangers either confirmed or not confirmed um, or even the feeling that there might be conspiracies being woven against the Muslim community or those who are in fact loyal to the Prophet and this behavior is deeply disturbing to the group that are not among the munafiqun. So they they are they 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 know that these people say that they're fellow Muslims but they also know that these are the people who are constant critics of the reform, the, 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 the laws that demand changes. And we've talked about that in Surah An-Nisa. And they constantly feel that what are these people up to 
does this mean that we should, should treat them as enemies or should we treat them as Muslims? Do we trust them? Do we don't trust them? Now, pause here. There's a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ that tells you if there are three people together, two people should not start speaking amongst themselves to the exclusion of the third, lest the third think that the conversation taking place is about that third person. I trust all of you have heard this hadith at one point or another. And this hadith uses the word najwa, the expression najwa. The dynamic of najwa that the Quran is talking about here, al-mujadala is honest. Al-mujadala is you are being honest about why you are objecting to the law and you are complaining to God and the law must be responsive and Najwa is dishonest this is the, the thing Mujadala actually turns out to be healthy it's a healthy dynamic the Najwa is unhealthy because it has the element of treachery and secrecy and exclusiveness. It excludes people. It is a discourse away that creates factions and parties in society that breaks the sense of transparency within society. So when there's a, a number of hadith, I mean, a considerable number, where some of them are um, like a hadith that has been described as actually da'if or that um, the, um, the Prophet ﷺ hears um, um, uh, he, they, he hears people outside um, his residence speaking. He comes out to them and he says, what are you talking about? And they say something, one narrative, one version says we were talking about, uh, the, we were talking about Christ. Another narrative says, another version says we're talking about the moon. And he says, didn't I forbid you from engaging in Najwa? These are not the, I mean, these are the the the, uh, the the unreliable versions of, uh, but clearly, if you take the 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 all the versions together and you see what they articulate is a social anxiety about a dynamic. The text of the Quran itself points us to this social anxiety about this dynamic, as we'll see in a second, about the process in which, instead of there being a jidal, an open, honest 
conversation or debate or argument about the issues created by these legal changes. Instead, there is this air of secrecy and the possibility of subterfuge. And um, undermining the law or the program of change through dishonest means. So this Adwan wa Ma'asiyat al-Rasul. So part of this wa iza hayyuk bima lam yuhayyik bihi Allah bima lam yuhayyika bihi Allah that this refers again to a specific the report says that Jewish tribes or the Jewish tribes and some report says also members of the Munafqun that they would say assalamu alaykum instead of assalamu alaykum they they take out the lam and alif assalamu alaykum or the lam assalamu alaykum assalam means death upon you um instead of peace upon you and there are narratives from Aisha again one of the versions for instance that a um, cer- certain individuals passing by and then they say to the, the Prophet Assalamu alaikum and Assalamu alaikum ya Abu Qasim and Aisha hears that catches that they said a Sam and not a Salam and that she responds to them wa alaykum as-sam wa la'natullah and so, and may Allah's sam death and and God's curse be upon the upon you and then the prophet alayhisallam tells Aisha ya ya Aisha inna Allah la yuhibbu al-fuhsh wa la al-mufhish that Aisha you know you should respond this way because Allah doesn't like obscenities um, or those who are say obscenities, and she said, "Alam tasmaum." Didn't you hear what he just said? And um, and the prophet answers her, "Yes, I heard." And what I said is, "Wa alaykum." It's enough that I just said, "And unto you, whatever you said." So, in other words, there's no need to go to obscenities. It, um. So you have the, these, these traditions that tell us that part of the dynamic is, again, the dishonest use of language in perhaps we can call non-transparent and non-accountable way to make sneers and jeers and to sort of give, to stab to create an environment of insecurity and insecurity and anxiety and suspicion, language can do that. If we don't use language responsibly and honestly, that's why where you find language often the most not straightforward, the most unstraightforward language is often in authoritarian societies. Authoritarian societies learn 
how to say what they want to say without saying it. Saying it directly, indirectly. But that's that's part of Nejwa. That, that, that's part of the immorality of the process. Is that if you don't learn to speak honestly and see it, language creates reality. Language is not just an instrumentality that is, uh, you know, uh, neutral and safe. Language is a very dangerous weapon. You, 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 and it's like a gun. You can't, you, you know, if you're if you're very adept, you can shoot a gun where you want it to go. But most people are not skilled with language. It, language requires a great deal of education and talent to be used with precision. But even if used with precision, you know, if you're if the recipient of the language is not equally skilled, well, it can produce all types of unintended consequences. So, okay. So we we know that so many of the reports that are transmitted in the context of Surat al-Mujadala, um, focus on the role of the munafiqun in having their own meetings, which, by the way, will culminate in Masjid al-Durar. Just, we, we haven't gotten to that incident yet. But a, an air of insecurity, the fact that they spread, that they, they talk about uh, rumors, they engage in, they indulge in quite a bit of rumors. And so... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then comes and says, understand that if you are going to engage in the type of speech that is by its nature inaccessible to all, so it's not open forum speech, a speech that is that excludes parties, then فَلَا تَتَنَاجَوْا بِالْإِثْمِ وَالْعِدْوَانِ وَمَعْصِيَةِ الرَّسُولِ وَتَنَاجَوْا بِالْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَى So the only options is that you talk about birr and taqwa. But if your speech involves aggression disobedience or undermining the prophet because now look at this expression here intent in shaitan so Najwa itself, why did it, uh, in 10, Allah doesn't tell us that it is, that evil speech, but Najwa itself 
It doesn't mean that all Najwa is demonic, but it means that the Minash Shaitan means the potentiality that it be demonic is there. When you engage in speech that is exclusive, that is inaccessible, And referring to the context that I'm, I'm talking, that I was just describing, so that it causes those who believe, believe meaning those who are actually loyal and sincere with the Prophet, a great deal of anxiety. What it's referring to is that the dynamic that I just described, that there are parties that engage in speech, whether in amongst themselves, or whether with Jewish tribes, as the traditions tell us, but this inaccessible speech that is engaged in underground, very different from Jumujadala, which creates a great deal of insecurity in society. If you must engage in it, then it must be in better than the taqwa. But Allah knows that, in fact, that's not what you talk about. And that the social effect of your najwa is what we've described. Okay. But Allah, of course, then assures Muslims, because this is a message also to Muslims, that well, you know, the anxiety that you feel, they can't hurt you unless Allah allows them to hurt you. Okay. Then we come to this most remarkable Quranic Ya ayyuha al-lazina amanu Iza qila lakum tafassahu fil majalis fafsahu yafsahi Allahu lakum wa iza qila lakum unshuzu fanshuzu yarfa'i Allahu al-lazina amanu minkum wal-lazina ugtu al-ilm darajat wallahu bima ta'amaluna khabir At this point you get this message that if Allah says, let me see how it, uh, this is 11, right? What time is it? By um, okay, Muhammad Asad just translates it. Make room for one another in your collective. Oh, oh, wait. Muhammad Asad translates it. Uh, all you have attained to face when you are told, make room for one another in your collective life. Do make room and return, and, and in return, God will make room for you in God's grace. The reason I, I paused and I got surprised is he says, in your life, which is actually quite insightful of Muhammad Asad. Because if you, the traditions are often completely, they tell you things like that people were so eager to be close to the Prophet ﷺ, which I, I don't doubt that the, the, the ones who were sincere, but that they tell you that the occasion for a revelation was that um, the 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 um, um, those who took part in Badr um, came and they wanted to sit in the front rows, but the uh, 
people who were later converts after Bad wouldn't make space, and so the people who took part in Bad, you know, stood around disappointed that they couldn't sit close to the Prophet. And often, then, the way that you learn this, and definitely the way that I learned this, is that, um, well, this what this ayah is saying is that if someone comes late and wants a spacious move, move, move aside and give them let give the space to sit. But this completely misses the point. Why, right after Allah is talking about al munajah we started out with Jadal, then we went to Munajah, and then Allah starts talking about ifsah al-majalis, and as if it just makes space for people to sit. Right? You, you're rather stumped. Well, how does this all... Now, let's see if uh, if I copied this. Or I hope so. Um, if not, I, I can find it. Um, Uh. Yeah. Okay, so here's what Arazi says, which I think he's right on. So he says, "Alam, alam, and this ayah is that what this ayah is talking about, not it's not talking about making space. And in fact, he describes it as irrational to think that it's just talking about making space for people uh, in, in majlis. But what it's saying is to open the doors of goodness that is the dynamic of both and the your 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 attitude is to embrace facility and ease and to open the venues and doors for goodness in 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 all your social dynamics and as razi says says to actually bring happiness to the hearts of people so Pause here again. Look at the way the, the Prophet ﷺ, when Khawla tells them that 
her husband who created the problem. He doesn't have the health to fast or the money to, to, to feed. Or the story of the man with the strong sexual desire. Again, the, the way that the prophet solved the problem, solves the problem is precisely like if Sahil Majalis. Your, the attitude you should have instead of an, the, the type of social dynamics in which you are creating suspicion, creating, you are perhaps inter, even entertaining yourself at the expense of people by creating an air, an air of suspicion and treachery and backbiting and you know, betrayals and factionalism and, you know, breaking as in the dynamics of Najwa, this party and that party. Contrast this with al-ifsah fil-majalis wal-inshaz, wal-nushuz, that you are actually having an attitude of all is welcome, we are here, here, to spread goodness and to solve your problems. Here, Najwa, so when someone says, well, what, how does Najwa on Birr and Taqwa look like? So it means that if I get with, you know, if I have a secret conversation, we talk about our special code of, of Salah, well, actually, if, or our special code of Dhikr, well, actually, if your special code of dhikr is going to create a faction and a, the impression of a secret society and create a sense of division and suspicion in society, then no, it's not bitter and taqwa. And it's not about bitter and taqwa. It's not a conversation. It, it, bitter and taqwa is in najwa, if you must have it, that it must pour into that moral principle of opening the doors of goodness. All is well, all are welcome. Our hearts and souls are open to all. The law itself must reflect that attitude because remember that this, this surah starts out with a legal problem. If the law is says I am here to maintain hududullah, even if that means complicating and making the lives of people very difficult, then you failed. Al ifsah fil majalis is understanding what hududullah are supposed to serve, and we, in the same way that we, the Prophet upheld the principle of a kafara is necessary, but the moral lesson that the kafara is paid by bait al-mal, if need be. So the point is, is not to torment people. The point is to reaffirm the morality while at the same time al-ifsah fil-majals, opening the doors for goodness. Now, It is not an exaggeration to say that this ayah, 11, 
إذا قيل لكم تفسحوا في المجالس is itself an entire moral philosophy. If you truly understand what Surah Al-Mujadala is about, because it, it, if you create a society that is a closed society, anchored on the assumptions of privilege and exclusivity, VIP, as opposed to non-VIP, Sada, as opposed to the non-Sada, you know, like, wherever you go to Muslim societies, unfortunately, you know, one of the things that, like, bothered me enormously, do you, do you know, to, to get, We've created societies. Muslim societies are are profoundly hierarchical. Like if if you are in nobody, you have no chance of meeting the bashawat or the you know the higher ups. Um, even I mean I, I don't want to digress. So even in the in the religious institutions. Um, You know, the the way that you, if you if you can, if you have access to meet Sheikh Al Azhar and you have access to meet a Mufti, and the, the way you're treated is as if you just, you suddenly jump from a common human being to to you know uh, um, royalty, and it is it is such a, just contra the entire morality of the Quran. The ifsah al-majalis is, is an entire, it's, a, it's this moral spirit of saying God's law is not here to complicate the lives of people. God's law is here to solve the problems of people. Okay. But then, look, Now, it says, وَإِذَا قِيلًا شُزُوا فَانْشُزُوا يَرْفَعَ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْكُمْ وَالَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمِ دَرَجَاتِ So, this reference, of course, you know, um, I did forget one thing. I um, I'll, I'll have to come back to it. I hope I don't forget. Okay. That uh, first, let me uh, say something about inshaz. Um, and in and and nashas is for is when. Is something to move from its actual or its proper place. Um, that is why we say Imra'a Nashas. 
for instance, that a woman that, of course, we, the technical meaning as we've talked about is sexual, uh, and sexual offense, but linguistically, it, that a woman that has broken or that has moved from whatever place, um, that's the linguistic. So when we say, now, of course, you get reports that say that, well, this refers to um, uh, that people would love to hang around the Prophet, and, you know, they would be told, okay, disperse, and they wouldn't disperse because they just wanted to hang around the Prophet. And, and that, of course, we later on get a revelation that addresses the specific um problem but as Razi points out that here and the the reference to anushus must be understood in the context in ref to the reference of ifsah al majalis means like where you say when shuzu move out of your comfort zone is the best way I can put it. That it, in the same way that if Sahil Majlis, in the same way that to truly open the doors of goodness, as Razi and, and others had put it. Uh, also, you find that a lot of the Sufi Tafasir, same thing was. Um, it is you you can't remain static and do that often it means moving out away from or that you move beyond what you're comfortable with otherwise if you're static, the nature of a society that relies on what comes to it, the passive least resistance, in other words, a society that is determined to create a moral order will challenge its, the, the dynamics of exclusivity. Well, uproot will say we want to create accountability and transparency but that requires going out of your comfort zone because the comfort zone is to rest on inherited privileges inherited fractions listen what is it that no human beings normally gravitate to right tribalism clannishness uh ethnic divisions that are comfortable to them, class divisions that are comfortable to them, family divisions that are comfortable to them. Uh, you, 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 people tend to mix with their class. People tend to mix with people of their language. People tend to mix with people of their culture. People tend to mix with people of their race. They tend to mix with people of their ethnicity. Well, in order to challenge that, and you open an ifsah al-majalis to actually 
open up the doors of goodness and the doors of inclusivity, then yeah, it requires the shoes that you go out of your comfort zone. Because if it's just a comfort zone, it's going to be same old, same old. Now, the other thing is so many of the Quranic commentary commentaries pause at that Allah will elevate those who have true piety and true knowledge. And remember that when Allah speaks about men and women, Allah says that men in accordance to their natural abilities and in accordance with their earning power or what money they bring in, they have over women what? A single daraja. Singular, not plural. Here, it refers to plural darajat. So, the comparison is stark, right? What does a single step mean compared to many steps? And here, the, the, the grammatical construction, because it, is it saying that if you are, if you succeed in this attitude of being open to goodness and inclusivity, which is al-ifzah fil majalis, is the heart of inclusivity. You're making space for others instead of munajah, instead of people having you know little factions. You're saying no, all come in. We're all we're all one. Is it saying that if you do this, then you will have iman and ilm that will open the possibility for true iman and true ilm that is steps and above? Or is it saying that those who have iman and ilm are especially positioned to achieve al-ifsah majalis and that that open dynamic we're talking about now of course in the in the commentaries you read in this in uh, when they comment on ayah number 11 they they all you know discuss the hadith about um, that al-alim that al-alim the ibadatul alim that the a person who worships and they're a alim and they're a scholar or they seek knowledge um, that one day of worship is equal by them is 
equal to 40 years of worship by ibadatul abid that the worship of someone who is not a seeker of knowledge and you find in the books of um, uh, in the tafsir you know in many reports about that the value or the importance of this ayah in understanding that the importance of seeking knowledge and that it, most commentaries tend to take this to mean that in order to in fact fulfill the objective of al-majalis and and that you need to recognize the importance of ilm and that that the iman and ilm both that the combination of two coming together and that the alim the importance of an alim and because you often get the traditions in this context that which say you know that uh, scholars are the inheritors of prophets and that between uh, that the people who have the power of intercession and shafa'a uh, um, in the hereafter will be prophets, martyrs, and scholars. You know, a, a lot of these traditions. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not challenging them or saying that they're not authentic or anything. I mean, the, the, the no tradition, even more than Judaism, has put an emphasis on the importance of seeking knowledge and the importance of society translating the its reverence for those who seek knowledge it, you know it's 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 a it's not enough that we tell people seek knowledge and but society itself doesn't revere those who seek knowledge and absolutely i believe that that part of the problem is that when social values betray, you know, we, we say we value our religion and we value our tradition and we value our sharia and we value this, but then our social values don't actually translate that into the, and this, this pathology produces all types of evils. But I think that to that the, the language itself that the Allah is telling us that if you adhere to the morality that the Quran is teaching you, part of this morality, you understand the, the way that God's law is supposed to work. You understand the importance of opening the doors of khair, of goodness. And you understand the importance of dynamism and you understand the, the importance of honesty in the construction of, in speech constructing reality and the critical role of honesty in speech, 
that that in turn, because in the same way that Allah helps those who help themselves, that that in turn will mean that Allah will help those of you who have iman and who want to seek knowledge. To so it's it's a the entire gist of Surah Al-Mujadara. It's a it's a dynamic flow in the same way that the woman starts out with a conversation with her husband, goes to the Prophet goes to Allah, and then Allah responds. And it's like it's this dynamic uh, uh, process. You get the same type of, of energy from what the Quran says about the place of Iman and Ilm, both in inspiring al-ifsah fil-majalis and opening the doors of goodness and the effect of opening the doors of the effect of this morality in in turn nourishing and growing the the process of iman al-ilm that it is not you know it goes both ways the the thing that i forgot um is um was verse eight um notice where it says um here what they're saying is that they okay so we talked about them saying sam meaning death unto you um sam alaykum abu qasim and of course, if you you know you you're again, it's 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 using speech in a in a dishonest way, and you're you're anyway. Um, but they were also then saying, well, if why doesn't God? God knows. That we're we're saying death unto you, not peace unto you. Why doesn't God punish us? Because why doesn't God curse us? It is easy to to just read this something like this and say, "Oh, okay, yeah, fine." So you know, they're they're challenging the the Prophet and and Allah. But look at again the the that type of attitude is actually something that is familiar to all of us, where you use God in in human competitions as if God is a player with us. Well, you know if if. Like, for instance, I often hear dictators in the Middle East say, well, you know, if we were wrong, God wouldn't have helped us. Uh, the, the reason we're in power is because God is in our side. That way of exploiting, you don't know why God has allowed you to put people in prison or torture people or kill people. Do not use God 
in a way that reduces divinity to your petty human ends. Why God has it, you know, doesn't curse you and smite you because you are wishing death unto the prophet, that is neither for you nor I to even think about. It's immaterial to the dynamics of thinking about what's right and what's wrong. Allah has Allah's purposes that are you and I are not privy to. And we should never play that game of because it it, it just if you pay attention and you're honest with yourself, you will see how often we do play this game. We take a reality well, this must be Allah must be okay with this because that's the reality that we've constructed as human beings. You can draw no such inference. You know, Allah must want you to stay married to this person, or Allah must want you to have this. Well, because it just, it is. Well, no. It, 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 you you can't use that, especially when it comes to the social dynamics that you would so the fact that they are trying to say that God didn't smite us and so it must be that then we are not bad and that in fact this can't be a truthful prophet all of these are the the imputing of and this is exactly what the Quran criticizes the Israelites for doing is that the reduction of divinity into these human endeavors um, what time is it? Oh, okay. It's after it's eight ten. Is it? Are you guys still fasting? Who's fasting? Raise your hand. <laughs> Two people. Haram. My apologies, but you've earned a lot of hasanat because of this, you know. So it's okay. The rest of you who broke fast, no hasanat for you. Okay, well, inshallah, we'll finish short and mujadala next week. Let's stop here and we'll uh, we'll complete it next week, inshallah. Okay, thank you all. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, wait, uh, uh, she has to close the proceedings. Our, I just want to, um, our friend Cameron Lee, Grace interviewed, um, uh, posted an interview with him. He's a cancer patient where he discusses his thoughts about um, uh, life and death and his doctors had given him a month to live um, after his um, cancer returned and uh, his liver failed uh, 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 yeah, uh, just wanted to say that we're very sorry that Cameron Lee has passed away and please make dua for him and for his family. May Allah accept your dua and may Allah ease their pain and may Allah forgive forgive him and grant him Jannah insha'Allah ya Rabbil Alameen. We miss him. Um, I, I've, I've, Cameron visited us in Los Angeles um, several times and I I spoke to him on the phone just days before he passed away and um, uh, yeah we, we, we miss him and
please remember him in your thought. We, 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 he will be sorely missed. Do you want to turn your thing? Yeah. So, alhamdulillah, if, if, you, if you didn't have a chance to watch it, it, w it was a really lovely um, conversation. And sure enough, it was on March 6th, and he passed on April 1st, which was the first night of Ramadan. So it really, truly was like a month. Um, and I feel so grateful um, that I had a chance to have that conversation. What was really touching is after he passed, well, I, you know, I was like trying to, re like I was texting with him, and I hadn't heard from him since like March 24th and then it was now about April 8th or 9th and I had like one friend um, of his whose phone number I had that the Cameron had given me um, so I called him because I, I just said you know I've been trying to reach Cameron and I haven't heard from him and and then he gave me the news um, and it was really interesting because his friend um, thanked me and said please tell the sheikh you know that that he's had a profound impact on Cameron because after he converted um he was just so much more at peace and you know it made such a difference in his life this was a friend of his from from you know i think childhood from a very long time um and he said that his parents actually you know i didn't know this from our conversation we, we talked about whether his parents knew that he was muslim and he said yes that his parents knew and that they were supportive but i actually had the impression that his parents had known for you know several years because he had been muslim for four years but the truth is that i found out that um, they had just found out in the last few months and that this was sort of an area of his life that they were really, they didn't know much about. Like they felt like this was something that just, you know, they, they just didn't understand or know. Um, and they didn't know that I had had this conversation with him. So um, they were, he was really happy that um, I shared that with him and he shared it with his with Cameron's parents. I haven't had a chance to reach out and, uh, and you know, talk to them. I wanted to, uh, you know, give them a little bit of time. But, you know, it struck me like, uh, you know, if I, um, I, I feel like this was such a blessing because if I had lost my son and I didn't really understand, like, this really important part of his life and how he came to Islam and what it meant to him and how he felt about it, um, and then all of a sudden I got this hour-long video where, you know, he's talking about it and you know he's been now you know departed from the world for about a week or two that would have been an incredible gift for me as a, as a mom or you know as a parent and so i felt really like just so happy to have been able to have that conversation and and, and give them that link and they were you know and i know his friend told me that his parents were really excited to watch it so um so that was truly a gift and uh so and i and i think if you if you watched it what was amazing is there's a, a portion where he talks about this dream that he had um, about dying and how the angels came to visit visit him and pulled his soul out of his body and how it was euphoric. Um, and so that was something that, um, you know, well actually, and let me add to that too, that um, the angels walked with him or, you know, he, he had to go and confront his his misdeeds and was like walked through this museum where he actually saw like his misdeeds and he knew that the angels were with him and like reassured him that you've been forgiven but nonetheless you still have to see your what your misdeeds were um, and he had the feeling like okay you know they, they assured him you're only going to be here for a short time as you're walking through the, you know this portion of hell and that he looked over and he saw he said for lack of better words sort of these prison cells that were for people that were not so lucky that they wouldn't just pass through quickly. 
Um, and so this was like a, obviously a very powerful dream, and it was really striking because it was very similar to what we learned in um, in Surajethia, um in Project Illumin. So, um, but but alhamdulillah that 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 dream reassured him um, that it was you know that you know it, that he would be. If he said if it was if this is what it was like, then I, I you know I'm I'm not scared, and you know. Um, so, and we know that that's something, you know, it didn't feel like a dream. It felt like something more than that. And, you know, and, and Sheikh felt that that was a message. So, you know, for that, that, that gave me a lot of calm and reassurance that, you know, I mean, he's definitely in a better place. He, you know, alhamdulillah, when he passed, I understand that it was very fast um, and that um, it was as best as, as it could have been. He was with his family and all of that. So, you know, I'm really happy to hear all of that, alhamdulillah. So please pray for him. And, you know, he was... Um, yeah, he was really special, and, and alhamdulillah, he knew he found out about Sheikh when he was in high school, and uh, had found the, um, a, a feature about him in the LA Times um, where it talked about how a lot of Sheikh's writings had been banned in Saudi Arabia, and he said to himself, well, anyone whose writings have been banned in Saudi Arabia, I want to read this guy. So <laughs> that's kind of how he found, um, found Sheikh, and then eventually converted so it's a really interesting story he talks about it so um, anyway I encourage you to watch it um, so I guess I, I didn't realize we were going to finish so soon so I didn't prepare any, anything but I thought what was very interesting is when I started to read you know again as I often do I will look at the um, the one paragraph introduction this is um, to this chapter in the um, Abdul Halim translation and in this translation um, this chapter is called the dispute um, and this is how it's described. Um, a Medinan surah which disallows a specific pagan divorce practice. The surah takes its title from the dispute referred to in verse 1 between a wife who had been divorced in this manner um, and the prophet. The surah supports the woman. It goes on to state that those who oppose God and his messenger, who secretly ally themselves with Satan, who lie in their oaths and make intrigues against the prophet, will be defeated and suffer humiliation, both in this world and in the next, while those on God's side will triumph. And that's it. And it's always so interesting just to see, like, what we get and then what, you know, is presented <laughs> as, like, the summary of the surah. So, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Um, thank you so much for this amazing first half of Surah Majadullah. I'm so excited to hear the rest of it. Um, thank you for being with us. And um, we're halfway through Ramadan, so it's unbelievable how quickly time yeah. passes. But um, inshallah, have a wonderful rest of the week. And we will look forward to seeing you guys a week from today. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>